I just need to give a little preamble to the people on this side. You don't need to listen to this. All right, just put your fingers in your ears. I might come down this aisle a bit later. If I do, can some of you stand up and, or put your arm out or put your leg out to make it a bit hard for me to come down? Is that all right? You're not listening, are you? No. Okay. So it's just make it awkward for me. That's all you need to do. So even if you're sort of sitting over here and you think they're not doing their jobs so well, just come out and just sort of, you know, no, no violence. All right. That's great. Okay. Nothing just happened. Great stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to that, whatever that's going to be. That'll be good. Today is going to be the fourth Sunday then that we're looking at the churches in Revelation. The first Sunday, we looked at a brief introduction, just seeing what was happening where. And then Nick spoke on the church in Ephesus. And then last week I spoke about Smyrna. And today, of course, we're thinking about the next one, Pergamon. And you might remember that when uh, John was writing, he was on the island of Patmos. And so he hadn't been sent, he hadn't decided to go there himself. It was all about him having to go. Because the Roman authorities didn't like it that he loved Jesus very much. He wanted to do anything that Jesus said to him. And so that's what happened. He said things, he did things, he was a leader, he was a real disciple of Jesus still. And the Roman authorities didn't like him. And so what happened is, there we go, there's Pergamum that we're going to be thinking about today. What happened is, he had to go to this island. And the island in the Aegean Sea, as you can see, Patmos there, and he wrote to these seven churches. His attitude was still great. He'd lost his freedom, but he was still following God wholeheartedly. He didn't give up on God because something difficult was happening. There's a church that we're thinking about today, Pergamum. I wonder, some of you have been to Turkey, I bet, haven't you? Because this is a little bit about Pergamum. Has anyone ever been to Pergamum? It's this city now we call Bergama. Bergama. Anyone been there? Well, the thing about it is, because I've been looking it up this week, you know, looking on Google, sort of Google images, seeing all the different photos that are there. And uh, there's some massive monuments that are still there. It's great because even though they're ruins, you can see the massiveness that was there and how much money it would have cost to build them. Interestingly, though, not all the monuments are in Bergama. There's one massive one that's in Berlin, of all places. Just like when uh, things were being discovered and everything, things went to the British Museum. Maybe that was a good thing, maybe that was a bad thing. So other countries did the same as well. And so there were some German sort of people that were digging around looking for things. And so they took their things back to Berlin. Of course, they say that Turkey agreed with it, but whether that's true or not, I wasn't there. But it's interesting, isn't it, how things happen like that. There's this massive thing called the Pergamum Altar, and that is 35 metres wide and 33 metres deep. It's massive. You can just imagine that's just one of the things that is in Pergamum. Some other things, there was a rivalry for the title of the first city of Asia. There's three cities wanting to be that first city. Go on, give me some names. What do you think it was? Ephesus was one of them. Brilliant. How about one more? I spoke about it last week. Smyrna. That's it. Yeah. So it was Pergamum, 
Ephesus and Smyrna. All these cities wanted to be the first city of Asia. Just like nowadays, Manchester think they might be the second city in England. But, but they're not. But there's kind of a rivalry isn't there, between Manchester and Birmingham, people think. But it's just the same then. They were thinking, oh, we want to be the first city of Asia. It was a massive place because uh, right next to it, there was this large table mountain. And on it, just like uh, Cape Town, that's got a big table mountain. This is exactly the same. Massive sort of sides of the hill and then a flat plateau at the top. And on these sides, where it was possible, and on the top, there was lots of temples. Not to God, with a capital G, but to Augustus, the emperor, and to uh, a healing god, small g. And it was a bit like Lourdes, apparently, where people went to Pergamum to get healed because of this healing god, small g. And so they went there thinking, yeah, we're going to get healed. So there was this... Uh, there was many monuments there and part of it was to be sort of follow different gods and to say yeah we're going to worship God with a small g whatever they felt like it's interesting parchment I wrote there because parchment a hundred years before John was there was being was thriving I wrote down because you might remember parchment is different from papyrus Parchment is from animal skins and papyrus is from sort of grass and that sort of thing. And so how people were writing had a big, big difference with Pergamum because there was this industry that was sort of having lots of parchments. And so there was a place of learning because there was lots of things to write on. So cultured people there, learned people went there, people that want to write things down. It was a big industry because of that. And it's the most northerly of the seven churches as well. It's about 100 miles away from where Ephesus was. We don't know who founded the church. Maybe it was Paul. We read about when he was in the area in Acts 16 and Acts 19. So maybe it was Paul. Have a read of those two chapters if you want to. I'm going to read Revelation 2, 12 to 17 though. This is what Jesus said to John to say to the church in Pergamon. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who is the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, in me, and not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some uh, among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they, uh, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has hears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
Over the last few weeks, I've been wondering what it was like to all these churches that first heard these letters. It's all right for us. We've read it. Maybe we've read it dozens, hundreds of times. And we know what happens, don't we, in the book, each chapter. But I wonder what it was like when the messenger came to Pergamum and all these other churches and they heard it for the first time. There was a little message for them, part of the letter for them. But then the rest of the book, I wonder how they felt. Because it probably took about 75 minutes to read it. That's what we sort of think the revelation takes to read. I wonder at the end of it, maybe the messenger had read it or one of the leaders. I wonder what the congregation felt like. Could you have heard a pin drop? Because of all the brilliant things that was being promised and described. Or was the cheering? Yeah, Jesus is winning and yeah, and great. I wonder. I wonder how you would have felt 2,000 years ago if you were there and you thought, wow, God's sending us, our congregational, a personal message. He knows about us. And yet he's saying so much more, saying so much that we want to know about. I wonder how the church has changed. Because if you're going to read something like this, as we've been realising over the last few weeks, we can't just read it and life stays the same. We've got to read it and then do something about what God says to our lives, haven't we? So I wonder how they felt. I wonder what they changed in their lives. I wonder if they took God's warnings as a real sort of clarion call, a real urgency in their lives, saying, Lord, you're saying repent. Lord, you're saying that we need to hear. I wonder if they did. I wonder if that's what happened. Let's look at the message a little bit more, though. So we've got the church, and we've got the church in Pergamum, like we're saying, we're thinking about at the moment. And then there's God. Jesus writes a letter via John, and they're saying, yes, all these good things we see in you. God is saying, yes. You are saying, yes, please, God. I want to follow you with all my heart, with all my soul, with my strength. Whatever the situation, Lord, I want to follow you. And the brilliant thing was, it wasn't just in the easy times. We know, because of this person that's written there, Antipas, we know all the other churches are facing persecution and suffering. Things that are happening there were awkward and horrible and not good for them at all. And yet, they're saying, you're faithful. You're doing this. You're believing in me, even in the hard times. There's been people martyred for loving Jesus for centuries, all over the world. Here's a few of them. You probably know some of their names. Thomas Crumner, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Oscar Romero, William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, John the Baptist, the Vumba ministries, uh, missionaries in Rhodesia, uh, Polycarp, who we were thinking about last week, Thomas right at the top, and Peter and Isaiah, John Hus. And right at the centre, we have Antipas there. And to us, they might just be names. We might have read about them in magazines or in books, so we might know their story a little bit. But to the church at Pergamum, Antipas wasn't just a name. He was their brother, their friend, maybe someone's husband, someone's father, definitely someone's son. And we believe that tradition tells us he was one of the leaders of the church, 
just like Polycarp was in Smyrna. It's easy for us just to think about being a martyr because it's never happened to us, is it? We don't know people that have been martyred. We've read about them, we've thought about them, but there's just a, a bit away from us, isn't it? We're not really there with them. But I wonder, if I had one more name, how does it make you feel if you think this person was going to be martyred for loving Jesus? How do you feel? Don't tell me, just think about it. We know all these leaders of, of different churches over the centuries have been killed, martyred, taken away because they love God. What if someone came in today, the police, because we're meeting together and they say, who's your leader? Perhaps we don't say anything, but Paul stands up and say, I am. How would that be? That would be pretty terrible. And yet all these other people, we don't know. And yet all of those had connections with people, family, friends, people they led. Persecution was terrible for many Christians in this country in the 16th century. It could return to this country just as it has, sort of list, it has happened in many places over the years. Let's think of some of the names. Something a bit easier, shall we? Because that's difficult. Let's think about these people. This is where it comes in. What we need to think about is, well, who's Balak? Who's Balaam? And if you want to read about them at home, we can think about it at Numbers 22, 23, 24 and 25. You can read about what happened there. But just to put it in a nutshell, the Israelites were going into Canaan, the Promised Land, and there were all these kings that didn't want them to come into their land because that was their promised land already. And so there was this king, King Balak, who was king of the Moabites. And he didn't want this nation coming in and stealing his uh, land and killing his people. Not at all. He just wanted the Israelites just to come along and uh, leave him alone. He wanted, and the Israelites as well, they just wanted to walk around and just take in the promised land and just take it back and just, just have a great time because God was worthy and God said it is going to happen. And so they just wanted an easy time. This is an easy time just here. But some of the other people didn't want that to happen. What they wanted to do, they wanted this to happen, the sort of, no, you can't get through. It's, it's not going to be easy. This is just something that's... Thank you, you're, you're really good at this, by the way. <laughs> yeah. they, didn't want, they didn't want it to happen where it was just a walk in the park and really easy. They, they, they knew there was going to be fighting and things, but what they wanted to happen was for this to not be so hard for the Israelites. They just wanted to go in because God said. And yet... There was all these other nations and kings who wanted to stir it up and say, no, don't come here. So one of the things that King Balak did, he had this freelance prophet, a sorcerer called Balaam, and he wanted him to say curses of the Israelites. Of course, it didn't happen. So what he wanted him to do then was say, oh, well, what else could you do? And so what uh, Balaam said was, 
I've got an idea. And it tells us about this, by the way, in Numbers 31.16. He had an idea for a stumbling block for the Israelites. And you know, over the years, there's lots of stumbling blocks that people find in life. I've put four there. Money. People want to have money. They want to have possessions. They want to have sex. They want to have power. So these are all things that people want. But they're often a stumbling block. And to the Israelites, whom they sort of went with the Edomite women, sex was a stumbling block for them. It was not what God intended. They worshipped other idols. The Nicolaitans as well. That was, again, in the, in the church, people were worshipping and following the doctrine of these people. And they were just putting stumbling blocks in front of true worship, being a true disciple. And so, they were saying, yes, I want to follow God. But there was also ungodly stuff in the area. Just like today, there's a permissive society. Exactly the same in Pergamum, exactly the same in Ephesus, in Smyrna. All those places, permissive societies, nothing new. The trouble was, some of them said yes, please, to the ungodly stuff as well. They said, yes, I want to follow God with all my heart. That's going to be great. But also they said, yes, I want to follow these other things, things that aren't great. I remember Adam and Eve. That didn't turn out too well, did it? They were going great with God. And then they had this thing, this apple we could call it, couldn't we? And they followed that and they said, yeah, let's have a bite of the apple. That's going to be great. There's not going to be a problem. But it was a stumbling block. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, it should have taken about two weeks, less than two weeks, to go across the desert and into the promised land. But there were stumbling blocks and they decided to follow other things. And so it took 40 years instead of two weeks. There was compromise in the church. There was compromise amongst the Israelites. There's only one word for that, isn't there? Ridiculous. Fancy that. Fancy people saying, yes, I want to follow God, but I'm also interested in godly stuff as well. That's really stupid, really idiotic, isn't it? What ungodly stuff is in your life today? It's easy for me to point the finger at the church in Pergamum and the Israelites and saying, they should have got it better. I've got to point the finger at me. What's in my life? What am I doing that is great for God, but at the same time is compromising my faith, my beliefs? How about you? Don't need to say it out loud. It's best not to. But think about it. What ungodly stuff is in your life today? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. If I was just going to go down, I'd like life to be easy. Really good. I'm enjoying life. There's no problem. It's all nice. 
But then, all of a sudden, even though I'm, even though I'm really wanting life to be easy, suddenly, what's happening again? Oh dear, I've got a predicament here. There's this chap who's really strong. I can't get past this. Oh no, now what's happening to me? Oh Lord, where are you? God, are you here still? Thank you. (laughs) What's happening, Lord? This is really difficult. Lord, are you still with me? We can say to each other, oh, that's all right. But we shouldn't tolerate sin. We shouldn't say, oh, that's okay. You'll grow out of it. It'll be different in five years' time. We can't compromise with things in our lives. We have to follow God and say, yes, with all my heart, Lord, I want to follow you. Sin needs to be dealt with. If you remember, if you were here last week, I was having a conversation with myself, as I often do. I talk a lot to myself, especially when Jill's not in the house. I talk out loud to myself. It's, uh, but sometimes it's not so good. And last week I was having a conversation with myself and I heard coughing. <coughs> I was talking to myself and I wasn't saying very good stuff really. And it was God coughing. I really heard coughing. And you know what it's like when you're sort of somewhere in a film or something. I was saying this last week. When you're somewhere and you're talking about someone in a nice way, because we always talk about people in nice ways, don't we? But you're talking about them and they come in and they politely cough because you're talking about them and they're trying to help you keep your social graces. I was talking some bad stuff about to God. Well, I was talking to myself. Not bad stuff, but I was compromising. And so God coughed and said, don't forget I'm here. Don't forget. And this is what he said. There's no positive spin with sin. Two weeks ago, Maggie read out some of Zechariah chapter 4 about a plumb line. One of these bits of metal that's non-metallic that uh, carpenters and bricklayers and artists use. And we were saying last week how important it is to have God as our plumb line, to base our life on him as he is the vertical. Also, recently, we've been saying about listening to God. It's one of the things in every letter that it says, he who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it was this Greek word, akuo, which is... Uh, figuratively saying it's God's voice which prompts him to birth faith within. So as we hear God speak to us, it's not just him sort of saying, oh, come on, come do this, you should be right. You're in a predicament, but you should know better by now. God is birthing something in us, giving us faith to believe and to change. He who has an ear, this is the amplified version, let him hear and heed what the Spirit says to the churches. But in this letter to the church in Pergamum, there is one word that is really important. It's God's conclusion, and it's in verse 16. So God's conclusion in verse 16. Metanoia. And we know this word. We've heard of it. Because 
This is what it means. It's to change one's mind or purpose. The change is the really important bit. But there's another important bit, the word meta, and it's to do with to think differently afterwards or the after effect of an activity. So we've encountered God and now we're not the same. We've been with him, he said something to us and we've changed. That's the repentance. We've heard something and now we're going to follow what he says. But as I've been thinking about it this week, that's been the easy bit. Because change, yes, we know we all need to change in various ways. And that's what all of these letters are saying. So that's not easy. But there's something more difficult. It's relative. That is the easier bit. Because I was looking things up again this week. And this time, it was a little word that really got me. Un. It really got me. I'm going to explain why. Because to me, when I was reading this week and, and thinking about it, I was thinking, oh, Lord, what does that word have to be there? That's a really difficult word, Lord. That's a difficult... Yes, that was the right way around, wasn't it? That's a difficult word, Lord, for me to, under, to understand, but worse to put into practice. Because the word un... Is, means therefore, so in, we, in the NIV, I read it in verse uh, 16, uh, wherever it was, yeah, repent, therefore. But when you look at the Greek a bit more, it's a lot more hard-hitting. Therefore, now then, accordingly so, by extension, here's how the dots connect. And straight away, it made me think when I was younger, and when I used to do dot-to-dots, And this is what God is saying. You've sinned. That's the first dot. And just as number one goes to number two, you repent. You change. You don't give it ten years to say, oh, I'll just consider it a bit more. Maybe it's a bit wrong. That's okay. God, you love me. My friends, my family, people at NCF, they think I'm pretty all right as well. I'll just keep this sin secret. This word doesn't say that. This word says, here's how the dots connect. You sin. You do something wrong. You do something that's not glorifying to God. The next step after one is to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I am changing my mind about that. That's not what is godly. That is not what you're calling me to be. You're calling me to follow you wholeheartedly, not to say yes to godly stuff and yes to ungodly stuff at the same time. So with God's help and his direction and with him having the magnifying glass on our lives, we don't just go home condemned, but we go home saying, Lord, that's been a problem a while in my life. You reminded me about it again. Lord, over to you to deal with it. I open my heart to you and say, Lord, I need you to help me with that so I don't stay the same. So that just as you challenged all these churches to grow and to develop and to meet the hard things, so Lord, that's what you're calling me to do. Maybe he's saying the same to you. He's definitely saying the same. He's saying that to me. Don't just 
be a Christian and just be 75, 80, 95% good with it. If we're going to make a difference in the world that we live, we have to be, Lord, all of me for you. Like John the Baptist said, you must increase and increase and increase some more. I must decrease and decrease. There's two words I want us to think about just before we finish. Isaiah 61, verse 1. I'll read it to you. This is from the Amplified Bible. Arise from the depression and prostration in which circumstances have kept you. Rise to a new life. Shine, be radiant with the glory of the Lord. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. These are the two words I want us to think about today. God is calling us to arise. God is calling us wherever we are this week to shine for him. To be like that city set on a hill. Not covering who we are and what we are. But saying, Jesus, have your way wholeheartedly with all my life, Lord, this week, today. And it doesn't matter if you're away from your physical home at the moment or at your physical home. You could be anywhere in the world. And God says, give your life to me. Take up your cross today and follow me. So that in whatever situations we find ourselves in, we're not condemned We're not feeling, oh no, this is a hard message. Why can this happen? I wasn't feeling so good anyway when I came in. Now I'm feeling much worse. This is awful. God is saying, come on, you love me. Change your life. Go from number one to number two or number three. Repent. Be serious about following God. We get choices every day, don't we? To follow God. Or to follow this ungodly stuff. We can look at the church in Pergamum like we were earlier and like the Israelites and saying they should have done a better job. In 20 or 30 years time, when there's maybe a book written about us, what are they going to think about us? The Christians, the next two or three generations that come, are they going to say, wow, they went for God? They were wholehearted or, yeah, they could have done better. Just like the church in Pergamum. God is stirring us to action. He's stirring me to action. And he's saying, change your internal life and then come and follow him. Just like he said to the disciples, come and follow me. So that's what Jesus says to us today. Put all your rubbish aside Put all the stuff that doesn't matter to one side. Get your shoes on or your sandals. Come and follow me. So let's pray. And then we're going to respond to God. We can pray. We can wail. We can worship. We can do all kinds of things. But we need to respond to God today, don't we? Lord, we do thank you for the example of all these people we've thought about. The church in Pergamum, the Israelites all these other people we know about and have read about. But in our lives, we know, Lord, that we can read these stories, these accounts, your word, and just let it wash over us. Or, Lord, we can do something about it.
And Lord, in my life today, I want to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, whatever the difficulty is, Lord, whatever the things that might be tricky in the future, Lord, thank you for my friends and my family at NCF, my brothers and sisters. Thank you that they can help me when I'm walking down and facing predicaments, things that are coming my way that are really tricky. Thank you there that's helped me as well as I'm there to help them. But Lord, in all our lives, we do say, Lord, come and have your way. And as you speak to us, we want to obey. We want to follow you, Lord, with all our hearts. Lord, help us to do that. Amen. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, That's Nahum chapter 1. So we could all pray out loud together. Just sort of that was really stirred something in me. What Jill was just saying, Lord, we need you. We put our eyes on you. We, f- we focus on you, Lord. So let's all just maybe stand if you feel able to, and we'll just pray to the Lord together. Lord, we need you. We need you in our lives. This nation needs you. This town needs you. Lord, come and do something in our lives through what we're doing. So, Lord, thank you. Okay, um, it's from Luke 15. It says. Um, verse 20, it says, um, so he got up, it's about the prodigal son, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then, um, and the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. Um, and, but the father said to his servants, quickly, prepare a best robe for him and put on him and a ring on his hands and tantals for his feet. And over in Zechariah 3, it says, remove the filthy garment. This is Jesus speaking. Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to Joshua, see, I've caused your wickedness to be taken away from you. And I will clothe you and beautify you with rich robes of forgiveness. Just God is saying that if we um, repent and turn to him, he will uh, cleanse us and give us rich robes of beauty for us to wear each day of our lives. So it's open for us to to walk into that right now. It's one of my favorite scriptures from Proverbs, verse 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Yes, Lord, we know that without you we can do nothing. And we just pray that you will work in all our lives, and we ask your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say that one of my favorite verses is, and we sing it in one of our songs, that the Lord has promised to complete the work in us. And sometimes when the work in our hearts feels a bit overwhelming, like how on earth can he get us ready for heaven in time? I'm going to have to live to 396. That's not how he works. So he, he must be doing something in all of us right now. And it's okay. Don't be overwhelmed. He's promised he's going to f- finish it. And he's not leaving it all to the last minute like I used to with exams.
That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Because we can see what we're like, our secret self, what we're like when we're not with other people. And sometimes that can stir us and just not make us so happy about our lives. And we can put a mask on, can't we, sometimes? And just, just need to say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word to challenge us. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us to guide us and to instill faith in us and help us. And it's all for your glory. It's all for your fame. It's all for you to be exalted. So even when we're feeling, oh, we can still smile a little bit because God's got it in hand. As long as we're open to him and listening and just opening up to him every day. So let's just pause a moment again, just sort of think, yeah, thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that you bring us. And it says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Are you feeling weary today? If you're feeling a bit weary, that's great then, isn't it? He gives strength to the weary. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait upon the Lord, hope in the Lord, is there another version we've got? All those, isn't it? Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Can you picture it? Can you picture yourself soaring because God is doing a work in your life? They will run and not go weary. Yeah. Can you imagine that? At the end of the Revelation 2, it was saying about a white stone. And again, I always get loads of stuff I don't say because I've run out of time. But the white stone is to do with someone who's won. They've won the race. They've been given a white stone because, yay, they were the winner. We're all being given a white stone as we follow Jesus and walk in his ways and keep on to the end of the race. Wow. So now we know the end of Isaiah chapter 40. God is with us. He loves us. It is finished. Thank you, Lord, that you have paid the price once and for all. Your grace and your love and your new mercies every day beckon us. Lord, we accept the invitation and say, Lord, with all our hearts and lives, we come to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and say, thank you, Lord, for challenging us, changing us, and giving us encouragement and comfort at the same time. Thank you, Lord, for the things that we've learned today. Thank you for the money we've collected. And, Lord, I pray that it would be really guide, be guided by you as the way it's spent. And, Lord, let it extend your kingdom and bring comfort to those in need, Lord. But, again, Lord, we thank you that we're your sons and daughters and that you love us very much. Thank you, Lord. Amen.